Hello and welcome to this podcast series of the first 50 years of the history of the American Republic. I'm Chris McKenna and I'm here with my co-host, Kathy Conroy. Hi, Chris. Washington was inaugurated as the President of the United States of America on April 30th, 1789 at Federal Hall in New York City. Here are a few fun trivia facts regarding the inauguration. Martha Washington was not in attendance at the first inaugural as she would arrive in Manhattan a few weeks later. With the temporary capital being located in New York City, a residence was rented for Washington to live in. The New York delegation organized the inaugural ceremony for Washington. They decided to have their highest ranking judicial officer administer the oath to Washington. This was the beginning of our tradition by having the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court administer the oath of office to the incoming president. Washington wanted the citizens to be able to participate in his swearing-in ceremony. So he decided to take his oath of office outside on the small balcony at the second floor of the Federal Hall. After taking his oath of office, he went inside the building and delivered his inaugural address to the newly elected members of the House and the legislatively appointed members of the Senate. The New York delegation hosted a parade through the streets of Manhattan after Washington's inaugural address, along with fireworks that evening along the waterfront. After the end of the fireworks display, historians record Washington walking about a mile through the streets of Manhattan to return to his residence. Kathy, the executive branch was so new and such a uniquely American creation that Washington had nothing to reference as he began his four-year term as president, other than what the newly ratified Constitution had generally written about the duties and the powers of this branch. The number and magnitude of Washington's accomplishments during his first term are very impressive. Some of the highlights. One of the first things Washington did was to create a cabinet He appointed Alexander Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury, Thomas Jefferson as the Secretary of State, Edmund Randolph as Attorney General, and Henry Knox as his Secretary of War. Knox was Washington's second-in-command during the Revolutionary War. By September 1789, within the context of the Judiciary Act, Washington had also overseen the organization of the Supreme Court and the federal court system and appointed a chief justice as well as five associate justices. John Jay was appointed as the first chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. The Constitution had initially stipulated an agreed-upon count for the number of representatives from each state for populating the House of Representatives. The Constitution further mandated that a census be undertaken within three years of the initial meeting of Congress for determining the number of House representatives among the states to replace the initially agreed-upon numbers. Thus, Washington also organized and oversaw the first census taken in the United States. Washington's efforts during his first term, Chris, also centered around the treatment and handling of the native Indian tribes and the westward growth of the United States. Both Washington and Knox, his Secretary of War, had military experience with native Indians, 
and sought to negotiate agreements with the tribes. Both shared the viewpoint that the Indians occupied certain lands long before the citizens of the United States arrived, and perhaps somewhat idealistically, Washington and Knox envisioned these agreements allowing tribes to govern themselves within sovereign homelands and essentially be left alone to coexist with the westward expansion of the country. Neither Washington nor Knox wished for the native tribes to be displaced. However, at that time, neither the newly created federal government nor the state governments had enough power to enforce the agreements negotiated by Knox. And essentially, the native Indians were overrun and displaced by the settlers during their westward expansion. A quote from Washington on this painful result was as follows, quote, I believe scarcely anything short of a Chinese wall will restrain land jobbers and the encroachment of settlers upon the Indian country, end quote. After being elected to the House of Representatives, James Madison's most important contribution during Washington's first term was writing the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, what we now know as the Bill of Rights, and getting this legislation passed in Congress and then sent off to the states with ratification completed on December 15, 1791. Thus, by the end of 1791, approximately three years after the end of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, the Anti-Federalists had finally succeeded in their mission to have a Bill of Rights written into the Constitution. Hamilton's financial contributions to the new nation as the Secretary of the Treasury during Washington's first term were also very impressive and probably on par with Madison's Bill of Rights. As Secretary of the Treasury, Hamilton wanted to enhance the credit of the United States and devised a proposal referred to as the Assumption Bill to have the new federal government consolidate all the revolutionary war debts among the states and pay the debts from both a tariff on imports plus an excise tax on some domestic items, including whiskey. This last tax on whiskey did not go over well with some of the population, as we will discuss in our next podcast, and actually was the root cause of what is referred to as the Whiskey Rebellion during Washington's second term in office. However, many of the southern states had already paid off their war debts, and so they did not have a lot of incentive to share in the debts of the northern states under this plan from Hamilton. Now, this is a story that I love, Chris. So Madison and Jefferson subsequently make a deal with Hamilton that they'll support Hamilton's proposal to consolidate all the state debts into the new federal government if Hamilton will support locating the permanent capital of the federal government along the banks of the Potomac River. And thus, on July 6, 1790, Washington signs legislation referred to as the Residence Act, moving the capital from New York City to Philadelphia until a permanent home for the capital can be found along the Potomac River. Remember, this is part of the horse trading done among Hamilton, Madison, and Jefferson. 
This legislation also authorized Washington to select the exact location of the capital. Maryland and Virginia contribute land to create the new district for the federal capital, and Washington formally selects the location. Washington gets very involved in this process during his first term and hires Pierre L'Enfant in 1791 to design the land plan for the capital city within the center of the district. Interestingly, L'Enfant was the architect involved in the renovation of the Federal Hall building in New York where Washington was inaugurated. Hamilton, meanwhile, continued to push even more extensive financial plans, proposing that a national bank be created and owned by both the federal government and private investors. Jefferson and Madison disagreed with Hamilton on this initiative. They said the Constitution did not envision the federal government chartering a bank. Ultimately, Hamilton convinced Washington to support this plan, with Washington signing a bill establishing the Bank of the United States in February 1791. Historians note that the philosophical differences between Hamilton and Jefferson over the National Bank were the beginnings of the emergence of two distinct political parties in the government during the 1790s in Washington's first term. Hamilton envisioned a strong federal government, and his like-minded colleagues all became known as the Federalists. Jefferson wanted more of a balance between the power and the rights of the federal government and the rights of the states, and his like-minded people became known as the Republicans. These political parties were forming and becoming more organized for the upcoming elections. So at that time, the political parties were more defined by their philosophical differences regarding the power of the federal government and the power of the states. Obviously, over hundreds of years of history, political parties have grown and changed and have become known for many different philosophical viewpoints other than the original primary philosophical difference over banks. And now, Chris, for some additional fun history on our capital city. This story really begins before the horse trading in 1790 among Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson. After nine states had ratified the new constitution and the process would begin for transitioning to a new government, Madison meets with Washington at Mount Vernon on July 4, 1788, what an interesting date, to discuss launching the new government. One of the topics discussed at that meeting is where the seat of the new federal government should be located. First, it's important to recall that when the delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia agreed to creating a federal government, they did so with the caveat that their state was not going to lose any power from what it already held under the existing Confederation of States. Remember, it was always about power. The delegates agreed that the federal capital would not belong to any state because that would give more power to the state to which it belonged. Thus, it was agreed the capital would be located in a separate district that would not belong to any state. While Philadelphia and New York were obvious contenders from which a district could be created, Madison and Washington, both from Virginia, 
wanted a more central location within the existing country, such as along the banks of the Potomac River. While no permanent decision was made regarding this issue in the summer of 1788, George Washington, who all expected to be president, picked New York as the interim capital seat. Washington reasoned that New York had already been the seat of the old Confederation of States. And given its more northern location, Washington did not expect that this area would ultimately be chosen to carve out a permanent capital location. Ultimately, by horse trading with Hamilton relative to supporting the consolidation of war debts among the states, Washington, Jefferson, and Madison got their wish in 1790 for the capital to be located in the South, much closer to their homes. Regarding the name of the capital city, the total land area is often referred to as the district and was named Columbia in honor of Christopher Columbus. The federal city within the district is called Washington in honor of our first president. Thus, the capital is correctly referred to as Washington District of Columbia or Washington, D.C. And for some final trivia, the original boundaries of the federal territory included Alexandria, Virginia. But Alexandria voluntarily ceded itself back to Virginia in 1847. And after the Civil War, Georgetown became part of the federal territory. Residents of the district have one representative in the House of Representatives. This representative is a non-voting representative, meaning they have full voting privileges in committee, but not for voting for legislation on the House floor. And many people ask why? Well, the Constitution specifically limits states to having representatives that can vote on legislation. The 23rd Amendment to the Constitution gave the District of Columbia three electoral college votes for presidential elections. And in 1973, congressional legislation provided for a mayor and city council for district residents. Many residents of the District of Columbia have campaigned for years for D.C. to become a state. However, the Founding Fathers were very clear in their discussions and agreements that the location of the federal government should not belong to any state, as that would change the balance of power among the states by making the state that contained the federal government more important than the other states. Thus, making D.C. a new state versus having it belong to a state would create the same end result in that it would change the balance of power among the states. And this is the primary reason constitutionalists do not support the District of Columbia having statehood, since it was created solely to contain the seat of the federal government. Chris, in our next podcast, we will talk about the highlights of Washington's second term in office.